If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians. To the New Testament, we're beginning a new uh, four-week series this morning on Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians in the New Testament. Philippians is a, is a short book. Uh, I think we may have some Bibles back there if you need them. I'm not sure. You can pull it up on your phone. Uh, hopefully, you may have this behind me too when we read it. Um, Philippians is a, a very short book. It's only four chapters. Um, and, and God willing, our plan is to kind of cover about a chapter a week as we make our way through this book. Um, the Philippians is actually shorter than most sermons. You can read the whole book in less than 15 minutes. But it's also, it, it's so beautiful and so complex. It's, it's rich in, in imagery. Uh, in, Paul's writing is just astounding there. We could easily spend three or four months going through these few chapters. But for, for our purposes, I want to take a, a kind of 30,000 view look over this book to tackle some of its main themes, Paul's core ideas. So hopefully you guys will be able to journey with us um, throughout this a relatively short study. Now, of course, it's no surprise to you that we are in a, a uniquely difficult and uniquely divisive time uh, in our com- country and, and really throughout the world, really unlike anything I've personally experienced in my lifetime. Uh, 2020, as I, as I see it, 2020 has been a kind of um, perfect storm of division. Right? So we're dealing with already uh, the run-of-the-mill extreme political division of an election year. Right? So that's happening. We expect that. We're dealing with that now. Although many say that uh, the, the polarization that we're experiencing now uh, is, is the most divisive that we've seen in our generation. So maybe that's true. So we're experiencing this extreme political division of election year. We're also experiencing uh, division, as we've talked about this even over the last few weeks, division along racial and ethnic lines. Um, and, and we're experiencing division both in terms of, of acknowledging and agreeing on exactly uh, what problem we're facing, as well as to address and how to correct the problem once we finally agree on it. It's very divisive. It's very divisive even within the church. And and all of this is on top of a global pandemic, which has its own uh, inherently divisive issues. How how severe COVID is, uh, the the, uh, effectiveness of lockdowns or masks or the the role it's playing in our economy or how we educate our kids and um, on and on and on, right? How to care for the most vulnerable without ignoring the needs and the rights of the least vulnerable. It's not easy. And of course, I can tell you as a pastor, um, the, the church is not exempt. Our church is not exempt. I've served as pastor here for, for 13 years, and even this church, which by God's grace and by God's mercy, and, and many of you have been here for many of those years, um, you know has been really without much division or drama God has been so gracious to us. But I can tell you, even now, as we're having a lot of conversations with folks, this, this experience that we're sharing collectively is bringing up issues. It's creating some division within the church. So we're, we're working and praying against that. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. I also want to acknowledge that um, there's a tension of how to both acknowledge and address that the division is there without, on the other hand, exacerbating that division. So we're living in that tension together. 
It's not, we're doing the best we can. I know you guys are doing the best you can. Well, I'm doing the best I can. We're trying to talk through, we're trying to bring the gospel to bear on this experience that we're all uh, having and all, in some ways, experiencing very, very differently. But the scriptures help us. Thankfully, God has not left us alone. And the, and the book of Philippians speaks to a church in conflict. It speaks to a church struggling to make sense of uh, the suffering that it is experiencing, the, suffer, the suffering that its founder, the Apostle Paul, is experiencing, and also how to live as a unified gospel people in a culture of comp- competing political agendas. That's, that's the culture of uh, Philippi. Let me give you a little bit of background on this book. You, you don't have to turn there, but maybe you remember um, the story in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 basically tells the story of the founding of the church at Philippi. So you, you may remember that Paul and his companions uh, on Paul's second missionary journey, they end up in this Greek town called Philippi, which at the time is part of the larger Roman Empire. Again, it's, it's in Acts chapter 16. I encourage you to, to spend some time to read that. Philippi was a small town, probably uh, even a little smaller than Brenham, or maybe similar to the size, of maybe 10,000 people or so. It, it mostly, mostly Roman expats living in Greece, living in Philippi. And usually what Paul would do, when, when Paul would go to a city for the first time, he would typically find the synagogue, and he would kind of begin there with building relationships and teaching and preaching. Um, but there was no synagogue in Philippi because there weren't enough Jews to necessitate a synagogue. And so one Sabbath morning, Paul wakes up, and since there's no synagogue, he decides to go to the river to pray. And when Paul goes to the river to pray, he encounters this group of women, and one of the women that he meets is a woman named Lydia. Now, you may remember the story of Lydia from the book of Acts. Lydia is a very important character, uh, really, uh, in in church history. Lydia was this uh, single woman. She was an entrepreneur. She was likely uh, upper, uh, you know, middle to upper class folk. She was a, a woman who was selling purple goods. She had her own home. And scripture says that as Paul is there talking with Lydia and this group of women, that this, this wealthy uh, businesswoman, that the scriptures say that God opened her art, heart, opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying and she hears the gospel for the first time and she receives the gospel for the first time and she becomes a Christian. She is the first Christian in Europe, Lydia. So this is, this is God pushing the boundaries of his gospel work in this new community. This is the first time that Europeans had experienced the gospel. And so she is baptized. She and her whole household are baptized. And she invites Paul and his companions over to the house to stay. So that you can see that God forming the beginnings of this church. Now just a few verses later, uh, we meet the, as, as Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi, we meet this young unnamed slave girl. And this slave girl is demon-possessed. And part of her, I don't think you could call it a gift, but this, this uh, demon has expressed itself in this young slave uh, as a fortune teller. And so her masters are using this young girl uh, to make money from this gift of her being able to tell fortunes as a result of her being possessed by a demon. Now she sees Paul and Silas and she knows that these are men of God. And Paul encounters her and he exercises this demon And he frees this young girl from this demon possession. And now because she has lost that quote-unquote gift, her masters are furious at Paul and Silas. They have Paul and Silas beaten and thrown in prison. You guys maybe remember the story. 
So Paul and Silas are in this prison cell, and what are they doing? They're singing, they're praying, they're rejoicing, and they're just, they're just having a great time. And part of the reason they're having such a great time, the reason for their singing and rejoicing is that God, they're seeing God expand his gospel word. They're seeing people come to faith in this community, the first that have ever come to faith. And there is, out of nowhere, an earthquake. And this earthquake shakes the jail, and it opens the doors of the jail, and it frees Paul and Silas from their chains. And there is a Roman jailer there with them, and he immediately draws his sword about to kill himself because he knows that if Paul and Silas escape, he's as good as dead anyway. And as the smoke begins to settle, Paul sees what this Roman jailer is about to do, and Paul cries out, hey, hey, no, 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 we're, we're here. We're fine. We're not going anywhere. You don't have to kill yourself. And this jailer is sort of confused, and he's overwhelmed with what he's seeing these guys sing and worship while they're shackled. And he falls on his face, and he says, what must I do to be saved? I want to experience what, what Lydia experienced. I want to experience what this slave girl experienced. I want to experience what you guys have experienced. What must I do to be saved? And Scripture says that he too, in his whole household, believed and were baptized. Finally, the next day, Paul and Silas, uh, no one in the town really wants them there. They're kind of causing trouble. That's kind of typical of what Paul does when he enters a town. Uh, he starts causing trouble. They want him out of there. And so Paul uh, is asked to leave the city. He goes one last time and visits Lydia, spends some time with this new little congregation, and then he departs to continue his missionary work. This is all in Acts chapter 16. The very first congregation in Europe. God's work on this new place. At this point consists of a rich Greek businesswoman, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer and their households. That's the church. That's the first church in Europe. Now you fast forward about 10 years and Paul um, is in prison again. Paul is in prison, uh, and most likely in Rome. We're pretty sure of that. He's in prison in Rome. Um, he is under house arrest. Um, and, and this small congregation in Philippi, it's, it's, it's stayed relatively small. The city is small. This first Christian church in Europe has continued to support Paul. They've, they've continued to stay connected to him. They've, they've helped fund his ministry. They love him. They pray for him. And Paul loves them. And he writes this letter to this little church. Several commentators that I was reading throughout the week noted that this, this relatively new, vulnerable, this very diverse congregation was, was Paul's favorite church. Now, I think there's some good reason why you would say that and why you think that. And you can see that really even in the opening lines and throughout the book of Philippians. So let's, let's read this together. Let's start in, in verse 1. Philippians 1, 1. Paul says, Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is kind of how he begins his letter. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's, he's thinking about that 
moment on the riverside meeting Lydia and her friends. He's thinking about the, the clarity that he saw in that little slave girl's eyes when he, when he exercised that demon from her. He's seeing the, the confusion and the, the just utter the desperation of that Roman jailer as he, as he longs to be saved. He's like, I, rem- I remember you. I, I pray for you all the time. And I, I'm just so full of joy knowing what God has been doing among you. And this partnership, this friendship that we've had in the gospel from then until now. And this too is a kind of theme that's repeated throughout the book. This is, you know, when you're reading the book of Philippians, you realize that this, this greeting, you know, the first, you know, first two verses are pretty typical of Paul. But then as he kind of gets into it, it's very different from the way he would address uh, the church at Galatia, for example, right? So he, he opens his letter to the church at Galatia with, 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 I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's pretty aggressive with that church, Right. But with, with the Philippians, he just gushes forth with joy and affection. He, just, he loves his church so much. Not that Paul didn't love the church of Galatia too. Of course he did. But there's this different level of affection and different need that he's addressing. In fact, just one example, the word sin is never mentioned in the book of Philippians. But the word joy and uh, words like rejoice and rejoicing are mentioned maybe 15 or 20 times. John Piper said that this is the happiest book in the Bible. And it's somewhat ironic, as we'll see. He says in verse 6, And I am sure, sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a theme we're going to come back to. He says, it's right, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I, I hold you so dearly in my heart. You're partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For as God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that, that your love may abound more and more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. He says, I want, I want you to know, brothers, he's trying to encourage them here. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that, that what's happening to me now has served to advance the gospel. It, in fact, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That's kind of one of the reasons why we're pretty sure it's in Rome. That the, and uh, all the rest that my imprisonment is for the sake of Christ. And, and, and most of the brothers even, having become confident in the Lord of my, uh, because of my imprisonment, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. So he's saying, because of my sufferings, here's what I'm seeing, church. I'm seeing that, that all, even all of these Roman guards that are around me, they're beginning to hear about Jesus and other Christians in Rome. They're, they're empowered and they're more confident in sharing the gospel. My sufferings are advancing the gospel. What, what perspective, right? He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and some from rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So what? So What? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and I rejoice. So he's saying, even, even in the midst of all these preachers and all these Christians, really just preaching out of envy and jealousy and selfish ambition, they're trying to just um, trying to shame me and my imprisonment. I rejoice. 
Christ is preached. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out even for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says there in verse 21, a verse many of us know, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm, to, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. He's expressing this tension that he's feeling. He's like, I, you know what? I'm kind of, I could go either way on this deal. I can see the benefits of both. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus. That's better. But you know what? To remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So convinced of this, I know that I remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. There's so much here, right? I mean, for, for maybe many of you, this is like your life verse. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I actually saw this little article this week of, um, of different people's life verses. You know, there were 20 different life verses that were all just taken from this book. It's full of them. Let me just remind you of the context here. Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. He likely, he likely spends most of his days chained to, literally chained to a Roman guard, and all of his nights chained to a Roman guard. He is, he is likely awaiting execution, probable beheading by the Roman Emperor Nero. And yet he can't stop talking about how happy he is. He's just like, he can't stop. He just, he has so much love and so much joy and so much peace and so much confidence in the gospel. He's looking at all of his suffering and going, you know, it's all going to work out. Like, how could you not be happy in the midst of, he's looking and he's looking at the church at Philippi um, and he's trying to make sense of, you know, we got, we have so much reason to praise. We have so much reason to have joy. He's encouraging this scared church. To rejoice. You know, in the ancient world, really similar to our modern culture, um, imprisonment, incarceration uh, was a very shameful thing. Very shameful thing for a, for a family or for a friend. So when your uncle is in prison, you don't talk about it. Right? That's not something you're bringing up. When, you're, when your pastor is in prison... You really don't talk about it. That's, and that's a situation that this church is in. Their, their, their leader, their pastor, he is in prison. This small church is scared. They're ashamed. They're uncertain. They don't know how this thing's going to play out. As we'll see later, they're somewhat divided. And Paul's looking at these guys. He's writing this letter and he's saying, Hey, what's wrong? What's wrong, guys? Why the long faces? This is going to be okay. This is a win-win situation, Paul says. The battle is won. This is a win-win situation. We, we can't lose in this thing. Even, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of death, perse- beheading. That's going to be all right. 
even in the midst of suffering, more than that, because of this suffering, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. If I live, Paul says, it's for Christ. If I live, it's for you. If I live, it's for my work. If I die, I'll be with Christ. It will be for you. It will be for my word. To live is to live for Christ. To die is to be with Christ. And all of this that we're going through, whether I make it out alive or not, God is using our shared pain to do something beautiful. No matter the outcome, rejoice. Yes, I'm in prison. Rejoice. Yes, this is scary. Rejoice. Yes, we're all unsure about how this thing is going to play out. Rejoice. God is using all of these hardships, all of our suffering, all of, the, all of this struggle to shape us and to advance the good news. He's got good news to share because of this. So Paul's not only happy in the midst of hardship, he's confident that this crisis will be used uh, by God for his for Paul and Paul's church's good and for God's glory. Now, I, let me ask you this. I've been thinking about this for a little while now. If I asked you, what are your strengths? What are your assets in your life? If you're kind of assessing the balance sheet of your life, and I'm asking you, what are your strengths? We, our minds would probably go to something like, you know, I'm really thankful for my strong family. Thankful for my kids. I'm thankful for my job or my, my money, we have, you know, we're, we're taking care of, we're going to be all right. I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my faith. I'm thankful for my friendships, right? I'm thankful for my education or these experiences that God allowed me to have, right? These are the good things in my life. These are my strengths. These are my assets. But what if I asked you about your struggle with addiction or with a divorce or bankruptcy or your incarceration, or being institutionalized, or your lifelong struggle with depression, or anxiety, or, or, or you're being abandoned, or persecuted, or abused. What if I asked you about those things? How would you think about them? And I'm wondering, that what if, what if those things in our life, those weaknesses, what if those are the things that, that make us strong or stronger or more useful in God's kingdom than those things we would have listed before. And so we can look at our pain and we can look at our suffering and we can reinterpret what felt like liabilities in our life, what things that were shameful for us in our life, and we can say, even those things, in fact, mainly those things, God is using. How, how many of you, when you look back at your own life and you're thinking about important conversations that you had, transformative conversations that you had with one of your friends or with a mentor or whoever, and, and you, were, you were so encouraged and you were so emboldened and you felt, you felt peace and you felt loved and accepted, it probably wasn't hearing about all their successes. It was probably them being able to empathize with you in your weakness and brokenness in crisis. It was them looking at you and saying, I know. Me too. Yeah, I felt that. 
And there's some solidarity there, and there's some peace there, and there's, that's where transformation happens, right? I don't wish any of those things on you that I just listed. Those are terrible things. Those are terribly disorienting things and experiences. But I can tell you, those things have happened to people in this room. All of those things. Already. Have we considered how God might be using those things to shape us and to impact others? I'm wondering even now, it's easier to kind of look back with some perspective and hindsight and go, oh yeah, I can see that. But I'm asking you now, in your current crisis, that pain point in your life, that tender spot, consider, God might be using that, will use that for his good and for your glory. Our, our past and our current suffering, it's not a detour in God's work in our life, Right? That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like when you're in the midst of it. When, you, when you're in the midst of a crisis, when you're sort of going along and things are going okay, maybe not like what you would hope, but they're going all right, and then you're completely sidelined by some crisis, um, and maybe 2020 has felt like that to some of us. I've talked to many of you. I know it's been a very hard year. It's been a very hard year for me. And you feel like this is, <laughs> this is not part of the plan. This is a detour in the plan. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. And not that God takes us, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God takes us maliciously just through difficult things to kind of, to, in, in, you know, in, to be petty, to teach us a lesson. Not necessarily. But God in his goodness and in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his grace, he does carry us through the natural brokenness and suffering of a fallen world. And this is how Paul viewed his own suffering and how he's encouraging the church to view theirs as well. I read an article this past week entitled, Someone Needs to See You Suffer Well by Marshall Siegel. And he was actually commenting on this passage. Part of, part of the article was commenting on this passage in Philippians. And, and, he, and he says this, he says, prison was no detour for Paul. While anyone, maybe even Christians might, might be prone to pity Paul, Paul saw this with startling potential. He knew the worst hardships were often the greatest highways for the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, uh, this wrongful arrest, my incarceration, my being left for dead, all that my troubles. And he goes through this, you know, like in 2 Corinthians, he talked about all his troubles and all his pain. It's really served, he says in verse 12, to advance the gospel. This, this gospel did not survive his imprisonment, but prospered while he suffered. More than that, because he suffered. Marshall Siegel continues, he says, none of us naturally respond this way to suffering. That's not usually how we respond, right, if we're honest. We don't generally respond that way in pain. When we experience unexpected turbulence in life, it does not naturally overflow typically in bright hope and selfless love for others. Apart from, apart from grace, apart from the grace of God, suffering typically, typically makes us impatient, it makes us selfish, it makes us despairing. We're often withdrawn, we turn inward and are less concerned with or maybe even unaware of the needs and problems of other people. We cannot often see beyond the darkness we feel. We, we talked about this uh, some throughout our series on the Psalms. This is what Paul is warning them against. 
This is what he's doing. He's saying, I know there's division among some of you. I know some of you are ashamed of my imprisonment. I know that, that you're fearful of my death. I know that suffering has a tendency for us to feel like God has forgotten us, but rejoice. He hasn't forgotten you. In fact, he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He hasn't forgotten about what he was doing in you. He is this, the same sovereign, good God who whatever he began in you, he will bring to completion. I know it doesn't feel like that now. The, article, the author of that article, he continues, says, don't assume your suffering is a detour. Suffering may hinder or even halt a hundred things in our lives, but God's love, God loves to use our griefs to magnify our vision of him. Suffering makes the gospel run with a pace unknown in prosperity, which it often does. We know that from experience. One writer, Brian Chappell, he wrote, by all outward appearances, as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, there is little reason for them to rejoice. Their, their leader is in jail. Uh, they, they face tremendous opposition from their enemies. They're, the church is experiencing internal rivalry and disunity. One of their key leaders, as, we, as we'll see in the next chapter, is, has, died, has nearly died twice. Uh, some are teaching um, uh, in confidence in the flesh rather than confidence in the cross of Christ. How can this people rejoice? They got no, it, it seems like, on outward appearance, they have no reason to rejoice. They got a lot of reason to panic. How can they rejoice? How can we rejoice in the midst of that suffering and that kind of division? Because God is at work and God completes his good work. That's what he does. That's what Paul is telling them. In other words, it's, it's through the trials of life that God draws us to himself, who is himself the source of lasting joy. We don't often see it in the moment, and the Philippians don't see it yet, but God is using their current pain for his eternal purposes. And this confidence allows us to rejoice. Paul continues here in verse 27. Verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come out and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, in fact, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, and he's trying to encourage them here, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You know, it's interesting as you read through uh, the first chapter of Philippians, this is the only command that Paul gives in the whole first chapter. This is the only imperative verb that, God, that, that Paul gives in the first chapter of Philippians. He says, this, this is it, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what he's commanding this church to do, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's actually, it's, it's, the word he's using there uh, literally means to live as a good citizen. Specifically to live as a good citizen of the kingdom. And we'll see how this kind of this competing citizenships are at play in the book of Philippians. Whether our allegiance lies ultimately to Caesar or our allegiance lies ultimately to Christ. Because again, this is a very, this is a highly patriotic, nationalistic uh, uh, community of Roman expats in Greece. That's who Paul's writing to. 
And he said, I want you to live as good citizens, not, not like the Roman expats do, not just as good citizens of Rome, but specifically as good citizens of the kingdom of God. Our allegiance is to Christ, not to Caesar, not to our country even, but to the kingdom and so our lives in the midst of, in the midst of political um, division, in the, in the midst of people having um, opposing views, we can be marked by oneness in the spirit, not by division, by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for joy in the faith that God is a completer of the good works that he starts. I'm reminded that God used the most unjust act in human history. The, the condemnation and crucifixion of his perfect son to bring about the deepest and ultimate act of healing in human history. The forgiveness and redemption of his people. Imagine, imagine church how God might use our current division to bring about a deeper unity within the body. Imagine how God might use even our, our fear to bring about a deeper faith in him collectively. Imagine how God might use our, our, our past or current pain to develop a, a deeper dependence on, a richer relationship with God and with each other. Imagine being able to look back on 2020 and say, thank God. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see the way he was going to do all this stuff. It felt like chaos in the midst of it. But thank God he used all of that stuff to, to, for our good and for his glory. He used it all to complete the good work that he started in us. Maybe our current culture of polarization will lead to a deeper, richer culture of prayer within our community. Maybe our current division will lead us to new depths of humility, new depths of generosity to one another. We don't see it yet, right? But what if? Maybe, maybe even our acknowledgement in this season, and our acknowledgement of the most physically vulnerable during COVID will, will lead us with a renewed sense of urgency to consider the most spiritually vulnerable in our culture. What's God doing in our heart? What's God doing in our community? Maybe our collective insecurity in 2020 will lead us collectively to cling all the more tightly to the security found only in Christ. There's hope for us, church. Rejoice. Paul says, remember and rejoice because he who began a good work in us has not forgotten us, has not been sidelined, is in no way stifled at all. Now, we've talked about, you know, kind of largely the division that's happening during these last few months. But think about your own family. Think about your relationship with your spouse, your kids, spiritually, your relationship with Christ. What, what's God doing? Your crisis and your pain will not sidelight him in a bit. He is a good God, and he brings to completion his good work for you and for his glory. So even now especially now in crisis, we can rejoice. Now, I want to spend some time in prayer together as we end the service. 
Trevor, you're welcome to come up if you want. We can, we'll, we'll kind of lead into communion, but I want to spend some time to pray. I want us to pray maybe specifically first for our country over the next few weeks and months. We're in the midst of an election cycle. There's a lot on the line. Again, lots of polarization, even within our small church community. Let's take a moment to pray for trust in God's sovereignty over this election. Trust in his sovereignty over every king and nation that has ever existed. That his faithfulness, no matter the outcome... Let's take a moment to church. We'll, 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 we'll pray in silent prayer. I'll, I'll, I'll close us out. It may lead us through a few more things. Take a moment. Take a moment, too, to pray for the church, both the church at large throughout the globe, but also and specifically for Redeemer Church, for the church here in Brenham, Texas, that we would be unified, that we would be together side by side in partnership of the gospel, that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we, our lives would be shaped by the truth of the good news. Pray for our church. Pray for the church at large. Let's pray together for joy. This is so much of what Paul is calling this church to in Philippians. And I can tell you after meeting with many, many people over the last several months, joy is not a word I'm hearing often. Let's pray for a renewed sense of joy, a deeper joy, a lasting joy, a joy in the midst of suffering and pain. for yourself, for your family, for your household, for this church, for our country. God, we ask you that you would God, that you would give us a rich, deep sense of joy anchored in you and in your presence and in your promises and the truthfulness of your word. God, entrust in your sovereignty over 
this election and every election before and after it, over every action that happens. God, we confess together your sovereignty and your control. And God, you are not only all-powerful, you are also all-loving. And you are all-knowing. So God, our allegiance is to you, our King. We trust you. God, when it is so hard to know what's trustworthy out there, God, we trust you. I gotta pray that we together as a people, God, your people, just as we read in scripture, God, that we would be one together. There There are so many opportunities for the enemy to divide us. Oh my gosh, so many opportunities. God, we pray for an unexpected, unrivaled kind of unity. I pray that, that, that we would be praying for one another in this room. That we'd be thinking about ways to serve and to love and to care for one another. Help us. God, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness. God, we thank you that we have a a, a faithful word, a true word, your word, upon which to base our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.